Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his presentation, The Beginning of the Good News, a study on the Gospel of Mark, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, The Temple, Part 2, recorded in April 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. Um, so it's not just, what do we owe God, because we were made in God's image. It's also, why should we give God our whole lives? Well, God raises the dead back to life. He honors his relationship to those who honor him. And when we get then to this, uh, this question of the scribe about what is the greatest commandment, if you read very closely, it's very interesting. Jesus answers, when he quotes from Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul, your mind and your strength, that's actually more than the book of Deuteronomy says. The Deuteron- book of Deuteronomy has three things that you're supposed to love the Lord your God with. Jesus says four things. Now, when the scribe answers him back, says, yeah, you got it right, Lord, or sir, <laughs> teacher. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your, and your strength. He only puts three there, which is the correct translation. Jesus added one. What did the scribe miss? He missed soul, which is actually better translated life, your whole life. So the scribe is willing to yield virtually everything except his whole life. Jesus says you must yield your whole life to God because God is the one who brings people back to life. And then right after that, we have that story, after dumping on the scribes as a group, of the widow who gives her whole life, dumping the coin into the temple treasury. So what I'm trying to do is draw some connections between the, this series of conversations Jesus had. Whereas all these conversations are really about sovereignty. They're about the kingdom of God. To declare allegiance to the kingdom of God, to believe in the good news of the kingdom, which was Jesus' message, what does that mean? The tribute issue is a secondary issue, says, uh, says Jesus. That's a, that's a red herring. The issue is whether you're willing to give your life up, as he is about to, right? a few chapters later as he already said he was about to in the journey story that we talked about last time, right? The son of man who gives his life as a ransom for many, giving his whole life to God. Uh, so he, he reorients the whole attempt to trap him, to say something positive and constructive about, again, his own vocation and the vocation he calls all of us to, right? We looked at that when he was saying uh, t- that if you want to lead don't lead like the Gentiles, right? Don't lead like the Romans, right? They dominate and oppress. It is not like that among you. Rather, whoever wishes to be the leader must be the servant of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, the climax of what he says in the temple relates back to the whole issue of what he is called now to do. It's Indeed, this is the Davidic warrior marching forth to defend God's temple and God's people and God's city, but doing so in a way uh, that will be quite unlike what people expect. 
So let's go back now to the, the thing that, that sets all this chain reaction in motion, what Jesus does in the temple. So what does he do in the temple? Well, all the gospels agree on what he does. He terminates uh, currency exchange in the temple, and he attempts to stop the selling of animals in the temple. And in Mark's version, it says he also doesn't allow anyone to carry any item through the temple area. And that's pretty obscure what that might mean. Uh, but those are the things he does. The Gospels don't agree on what he said. Mark, followed by Matthew and Luke with some modifications, basically has Jesus explaining himself by quoting scripture. He quotes from the book of Jeremiah and from the book of Isaiah. We all know the words, right? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves or a, a cave of brigands or something like that. Not so, according to John's gospel. In John's gospel, he doesn't quote scripture at all. He simply says, stop making my father's house a marketplace. Now, the question I always have to ask is, why is Jesus uptight about people exchanging currency and selling animals in the temple? Of course, what is a temple? It's a slaughterhouse. You need animals to slaughter. That's how you reconcile yourself with God. Yes, you can pray too, but you can pray anywhere. You can only sacrifice in one place. That's what it's for. So no surprise that people are selling animals in that larger temple area because it's convenient, especially during Passover when there might be upwards of a million Jews walking through that temple having to slaughter their animals for this festival that's coming up. What about currency exchange? Again, we already mentioned that. The reason why you have currency exchange is not because people were gambling or trying to uh, um, swindle people out of their money by you know, selling them you know, uh, trinkets. No, this is exchanging currency so that people may offer money for the upkeep, the upkeep of God's sanctuary in an appropriate non-idolatrous currency. There is this, the mystery of Jesus' action is that, is that it makes no sense on the face of it. There's no obvious reason why either of these things should be obstructive or inappropriate. Now, that doesn't mean that Jews at the time of Jesus didn't disagree over how the temple worship ought to be conducted. And apparently Jesus is inveighing in a kind of internal Jewish dispute. And uh, we don't have a lot of time to go into the details, but basically the question was where, sh at what point in, on your pilgrimage to the place of sacrifice, should the animal be yours? At what point should you own the animal that is going to die in place of you? The priests apparently were quite happy to do this within the sacred precinct, within the temple area, because it's convenient. The uh, Pharisees, some of the Pharisees, some of the rabbis that we hear about from later traditions, believed that you ought to own the animal before, before you cross the boundary into the sacred space. Jesus... I would say his action can simply be understood as taking the side of the Pharisees and the rabbis on this issue. Um, why objection, objecting to currency exchange? That's a little more difficult. Um, I'm not sure quite what the big deal was there. Uh, but in any case, you can understand Jesus' actions within their own mid-first century context as an inter- as, a, as, as an argument about the, how the temple worship should be conducted, which is exactly what we should expect given how Mark starts his story. He, he alludes to the prophet Malachi, which is all about sending my messenger to the temple to get the priests to organize the mode of worship correctly. 
He does exactly what we'd expect him to do according to Mark 1, 1 to 3. What, what, about, what was the thing about not letting people carry anything through the temple area? Well, maybe Jesus, like some other extremist Jews of the time, like the Dead Sea Scrolls community, felt that the holiness, the, the sanctity of the temple extended beyond the building itself into the whole temple area and maybe even into the whole city of Jerusalem so that anything that was not already sanctified to its use would not be allowed in the whole area. So Jesus may have been taking sort of a very puritanical, might be, not be the right term here, but a very um, uh, conservative, if you will, position on the way in which the temple worship was conducted along with other Jewish groups that we know at the time. But that is not how Mark understands this. People often refer to this as Jesus's cleansing of the temple. And I think that's a perfectly legitimate description, historically speaking. I've just made an argument that that's what Jesus was actually doing. That's not how Mark interprets it, though. Because if you read the words that he puts on Jesus's lips, they don't correspond to that at all. Uh, what does he say again? Uh, my house is to be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a cave of brigands. So apparently one would have to interpret that to mean that something about the way the temple worship was organized prevented Gentiles, the nations, from praying there, which makes no sense historically because currency exchange didn't prevent Gentiles from praying here. Uh, offering sacrificial animals close by wouldn't prevent Gentiles from praying there. In other words, what we have here is an early tradition that Jesus did something, and Mark is laying on top of that another layer of interpretation, another way of understanding this, probably related to Mark's own time. Now let's remember, when was Mark writing? Mark was writing in relationship to a catastrophic destruction of the temple by the Romans. The war began in the year 66 AD, ended with the temple's destruction in the year 70. During that time, the temple precinct was occupied by a group of priests, which uh, the historian of this war refers to as lestai in Greek, which is the same word Jesus uses to describe, you've made it into a cave of lestai, of brigands. It wasn't a cave of brigands in Jesus. It's a, it became, metaphorically speaking, a cave of brigands, a place of violent people. And that occupation by these violent people would lead to its destruction. Now, what about the, um, this is a house of prayer for all the nations, all the Gentiles. How do we make sense of that? Well, it always had been, right? Gentiles could come there and pray, even could offer sacrifices, at least have sacrifices offered on their behalf. But something happened in the year 66 AD, long after Jesus was gone, but right in about the time that Mark was writing. Mark says that the, what sparked this war, which led to the temple's destruction, was an act on the part of the temple leadership, or at least a portion of it, which banned foreigners, Gentiles, from bringing gifts to the temple, from making offerings, or of coming and praying in the temple. Gentiles were excluded from the temple in the year 66 and from 66 to the year 70 with its destruction. So my point is this. Jesus' temple action can be understood perfectly in its own context during the 30s AD as a dispute about how best to, or how best to organize temple worship. End of story. That's easy to explain. 
The words Mark puts in his mouth don't relate to that context. They relate to Mark's own context, where the temple had become occupied by violent men and these violent men had excluded Gentiles from praying or sacrificing there. In fact, the historian of this war, Josephus, says this banning of Gentile offerings was the foundation of the war. It's what led to the catastrophe of the temple's destruction. It's what led to the Romans running roughshod over the kingdom of God, as it were. So I would argue that Mark is telegraphing to his own audience who has lived through this catastrophe, and he's using the words of Scripture to relate their experience to Jesus's experience. Jesus had something, something, thought something wrong was with the temple and its leaders, and Mark knows that these same leaders, or perhaps their children, their descendants, are going to cause and bring about this terrible war and the destruction of everything. So what would Jesus have said about these people? Well, this is what he would have said, says Mark. He would have understood that the character of these leaders, and after all, they're pretty rotten characters because they try to off the Messiah, uh, you can see that same character in what they will do later by abusing and deforming the whole nature of what the temple is supposed to be. So if you will, this is Mark trying to relate the trauma of the war to Jesus's ministry. What Jesus was doing is somehow anticipating what's going to happen, right? Like fathers, like sons. If this is what their fathers did to Jesus, what will the sons be like, right? Something like that. But here's the clincher. You can interpret Jesus' temple action however you like. I've given you one interpretation, but there's others out there. But any interpretation making sense of why what Jesus does gets the leaders riled up and causes them to turn against him, which then leads to this whole standoff that we've been talking about. Uh, Any interpretation must take into account that Jesus' temple action is the salami of a sandwich. (laughs) It has two loaves of bread on either side of it. It's a sandwich story. It has frames, and the frames uh, are a story about a fig tree. Before Jesus enters the temple and does what he does there, he walks, to, walks by a fig tree on, on the road to Jerusalem and he curses it because it has no fruit on it. And then on his way out of the temple the next day or back to the temple the next day, his disciples notice that the fig tree has withered. He says, look at the fig tree that you've cursed, it's withered. And then Jesus starts talking about prayer. Well, what did he talk about the temple when he was doing his temple action. This is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it into something else. He curses a fig tree, the fig tree withers, and then he talks about how to pray apart from the temple, how to pray without a temple there. Think about how that would have been heard by Mark's audience, who was living in a world without a temple. How do you live without a temple? Jesus teaches us how to pray right after he has not only done something in the temple, but also leveled a curse upon a fig tree. Now, what does the fig tree symbolize? Well, in the very same prophetic book that he quotes in Mark's gospel, the cave of brigands part, that's the prophet Jeremiah. The next chapter in Jeremiah has has a metaphor about Jerusalem as a fig tree and God coming to the fig tree seeking 
fruit on it. It says not even the leaves are there. So at the time of Jeremiah in the 6th century BC, uh, Jeremiah the prophet was seeing problems with the temple leadership and indeed with the Davidic monarchy at that time. And he symbolized those problems, which led to the first temple's destruction by a foreign empire, uh, as a fig tree that was not fruitful. Right? So the fig tree that is not fruitful is a symbol of Jerusalem's leaders. Jesus curses the fig tree. Now, if that's the, the loaves of bread <laughs> that frame and interpret the story of what he does in the temple, it is no longer a cleansing. It's a cursing. Jesus probably did try to cleanse the temple in the year 30 or thereabouts, 30 AD. That makes sense historically. Mark, however, says there's another level of meaning. He didn't cleanse it. He cursed it. Why did he curse it? Because of the leaders who would, try to, who would destroy him and who would ultimately lead their nation to destruction in and of itself, with the destruction of the temple, the Jewish war, and all this. So Mark is, is, as it were, speaking to an audience who has been disenfranchised and deprived of all the signs of God's presence in the world. Sovereignty, some sense of sovereignty as a nation, a temple to worship God in. All of these signs of the kingdom are not there in the year 70 or whenever Mark is writing. And he's asking, well, where is the good news of God's kingdom that Jesus preached? Well, it's all going to be bound up in the understanding of the death and resurrection of Jesus because the death of Jesus came about because of what he did to the temple. Jesus curses the temple to destruction. He doesn't cleanse it. Now, if Jesus cursed the temple to destruction because of the badness of the leaders, well, then the Romans really didn't destroy the temple, did they? Physically, they destroyed the building. But why would God have allowed them to do that unless God was really upset with the leaders? Well, Mark provides an explanation. Uh, Jesus <laughs> was upset with them about what they were doing. He curses the temple. They retaliate by killing him. God retaliates by raising him and offering salvation to the world. That is the good news. So my point is that it's easy for us to understand that Jesus' death is redemptive. That's the center of our faith. That's the Paschal mystery. But for Mark and his audience, it wasn't just an abstract, you know, we're being saved from sin in a kind of generic way. We're being saved from the effects of these sins of our leaders and what they've done to us. We're being saved from this situation where the kingdom of God does not seem to be present in the world. The resurrection of Jesus shows us that it is not just because he is risen, but because he controls these events as it were, right? He is the one who brings them about, not because he just didn't want the temple, it's because the destruction of the temple signifies uh, the, uh, the, the wickedness of the leaders that would lead the nation to war. So the trauma of the war is Jesus' trauma too. He is in solidarity with us. So Mark's gospel tells a very specific story about an audience who wants to relate their experience to the story of Jesus. And that's what I would argue is what's going on here. So let's try to draw all this together. So Jesus enters into Jerusalem as the son of David, the Davidic warrior king, 
destined to liberate Israel from its foreign enemies. That's how he chooses to enter. He then backs up and proceeds to condemn and curse the temple, uh, and that then provokes the leaders to seek to destroy him, to trap him, and he, in a sense, battles them with words and overcomes all of their attempts to put him off balance. And in the end, he said, the Messiah is not the son of David that you're looking for. Right? This is not the Messiah you're looking for. You're looking for a Messiah that those leaders are looking for. I'm not that Messiah. The Messiah you want is the Messiah who's going to lead you to where those leaders want the nation to go, and that's going to be to destruction. So how do we account for Mark's um, ambiguous treatment of the theme of Jesus as his Davidic Mark? Well, he affirms it on the one hand, but he also comes close to denying it by saying, uh, you got to understand what that means. What it means is not what these leaders think it means. It means the Son of Man, who has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, who is going to rule and, and rule by example, not like the nations, who is not going to be like the Romans, whose mode of government poisons everything. It poisons the way the temple leaders behave. It poisons the way the ruler of Galilee behaves. It poisons everything. And so when Jesus finally confronts the Romans at the very end of the story in the Paschal mystery, this is what's at stake. What, how does God rule his people? Does he rule his people through the likes of these temple leaders? Does he rule his people through the likes of Herod the Great? Does he rule his people indirectly through the likes of the Romans? No. Herod, temple leaders, the Romans all symbolize anti-types. They're, they're the opposite of what the kingdom looks like, what God's power looks like in the world. Jesus then becomes the foil to all that. So when we get to the, to the Paschal mystery, to the passion of, of Jesus, it is the universal story of salvation, but it's also this specific story, the specific story of a people who has been completely disenfranchised by these disasters and asks, how is this good news? And the answer is that it's not. The good news is that Jesus and the form of leadership as well as the form of discipleship that he embodies, discipleship to God, that God vindicates. God raises that, uh, that form of rule, that form of community up above these false notions of community and rule that are opposing Jesus and opposing God. God raises that up and he has raised it up. And you, his disciples, are to bear that message to the world. A different way of being, or the, the true way of being Israel, as it were, right? Not like the nations, not like the Gentiles or their surrogates, the priests and, and Herod. That, I would suggest, is what's going on here. So it's only with the temple section, chapters 11 and 12, that we really start to see Mark's own context coming to the foreground. And out of this then comes the next question. Jesus splits from the temple. He leaves and he never returns. He has cursed it. He has condemned it. And at, when we begin the next section, chapters 13 and 14, Jesus is going to pronounce destruction upon him. He says, this temple will be destroyed. Again, very contemporary news, old news even to Mark's own audience. Jesus knew, says Mark. He understood what was going to happen. Uh, and the kingdom of God is the opposite of all that. Uh, but when he says the temple will be destroyed, uh, the inner circle of his disciples, Peter, James, John, 
Andrew, are going to ask him a question. When will these things happen? What will the hour be when these things will happen? And that becomes the, the connection between everything we've talked about today, the climax of the story that, le- that dictates how it's going to end, to what we need to cross through to get to the passion, to the Paschal mystery, and that is the hour, which is the hour of Jesus' handing over, the hour that begins Jesus' passion. When will all these things be? When will the hour be? Jesus tells his disciples, you don't know. Not even the sun knows. Not even I know. It could come at evening. It could come at midnight. It could come in the wee hours of the morning. It could come at cock crow. You don't know when it's coming. You don't know when the hour of all these things are. So stay awake. Don't go to sleep. Stay awake. Be vigilant. And that sense of vigilance, be vigilant about the destruction of the temple, which is, again, be vigilant. That's a message that Mark's own community has heard. They've seen this happen. But it's also, of course, a message to his own disciples. Be vigilant because there's going to be a moment coming up when they aren't awake, when they fall asleep at the very moment that Jesus enters into his passion, right, in the garden, right? That's, and so what happens in chapters 14 and 15, or 13 and 14, rather, is the whole issue of the temple's destruction becomes interwoven with the destruction of the body of Jesus. Jesus' passion, the hour of Jesus' passion and the hour of the temple's destruction are somehow mysteriously woven together here. And that's what we're going to explore next time, which is the story of the Passover and the, the handing of Jesus over to, uh, to, uh, to his crucifixion. So we'll see you, uh, well, actually, we actually have one minute left. We want to do any questions or, or comments. This is a difficult part of Mark because it doesn't relate to us specifically. We're not living in a society where the temple was the center of life, right? That's sort of old history to us. We're not affected by this imagery in the way that Jesus and Mark and his audience would have been. Uh, But this is the, the clearest place in the gospel where, again, as I said, the context of the author and its audience comes forward and speaks. Uh, and we should remember this, even if it seems foreign and bizarre to us, we should keep that in mind because it will give a new level of meaning to what we talk about next week, which is the handing over of Jesus, the hour, and then finally how the Paschal mystery of Jesus plays out. Um, We'll see how that wraps up all the, the strands of this gospel into a final climax. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.